I was working my day job still, and I had just gone from LA to New York and flew from New York up to the distillery up in Sonoma. Had a really stressful week, and I walked into a room with you know 15 gin experts in it, and they were high-fiving me and hugging me and saying, we got it, we got it, this is it. You know, it was about batch 132, and I felt elation and relief, I was exhausted, and they took me into a room to taste it, and in front of all of those experts, I just sobbed. <laughs> I just cried so hard, it was, you know, so much, we put so much on the line, and I was in a room of people, including my husband, who were so excited about the taste of this gin, and, and I didn't think it was right yet. It, we hadn't nailed it. Welcome back to Power Done Differently, the podcast that asks, what if there are everyday lion hearts living among us? What if they aren't white dudes in suits? And what if they can show us a better way? Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Jan Livingston. Jan is an award-winning creative director turned social entrepreneur. She was named Most Creative Woman in Advertising by Business Insider and has worked alongside the very best of Hollywood, including Darren Ofnowski, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Ava Longoria. But I wanted to talk to her about her story of impact capitalism as co-founder of Grey Whale Gin. At Grey Whale, Jen's philosophy is all about showing how spirits can bring people together while proudly celebrating California's coastal heritage and giving back to the environment along the way. One glass of California at a time. So buckle up and let's get into where it all started. The inspiration for Grey Whale Gin came while camping off a cliff edge in Big Sur with her husband Marsh and their two young daughters. We were at one of those camping spots you have to wake up at 6 a.m. six months before, get on a 1-800 number and try to claim that spot. It's kind of this famous camping spot. They were above the breathtakingly beautiful McWay Falls in Central California, a three-hour drive along the Pacific Coast Highway from San Francisco. There's a fresh waterfall that flows right into the ocean, into this idyllic turquoise water. And we were sitting there on this cliff edge in this idyllic, gorgeous place, being really grateful to be in California and be raising our daughters, not only in such a beautiful place, but in a place that values outdoor experiences and the environment and animal conservation and really just finding yourself in the wild. Amidst all of that natural beauty, a moment of what can only be described as magic sparked the beginning of a conversation that would change all of their lives forever. We're watching our daughters play and we saw a gray whale um, and its calf on their migratory journey. It's a 12,000 mile migratory journey. Um, all the way down to Baja, to the Arctic, all along the Pacific coast. They've been making this journey for 14 million years. And we got into that discussion, like really thinking about these incredible majestic creatures, a, a bit as dinosaurs. They've been around forever making this beautiful journey. And it made Marsh and I have a conversation that you only have when you're on vacation away from your job and your nine to five chores. And we looked at each other and said, what are we doing with our lives? Jan had spent close to 20 years working with some of the world's top creative agencies before being appointed as founding VP and creative director of 20th Century Fox's award-winning branded entertainment studio, All City. Marsh was a former pro athlete turned TV presenter and actor, working for the Food Network and National Geographic. So we had what was supposed to be successful careers and a successful life, but when you're 
looking at your daughters, what we talked about was, well, are we using our superpowers for good? And by superpowers, I mean, you know, all, all of us have our own skill sets, but what we've been giving, are we using them for good in a legacy that's going to make our daughters really, really proud? And when we pulled back from that, you know, we weren't, there wasn't anything that we were doing to make a real positive impact on the planet um, and make the world a better place. And then also we started to talk about, and how could we have more control over our own destiny? In the sense, I'd worked for different corporations for you know more than 25 years. And my husband, too, working for some of the big networks. And inevitably, no matter how high up you get in those organizations, you, you don't you know, have as much power as you'd like. You're not able to, to make all the choices. So it started from a conversation of how could we create something that we're really proud of that brings other people joy and that makes a positive impact on the planet. Like so many people I know who are doing the most good, her superpowers were formed from humble beginnings. My emotional intelligence is one of my superpowers. And that really, I taste that all back to my bartending experience. And starting at such a young age, I was bartending before I could drink alcohol. I've worked in fancy cocktail bars with celebrities and bottle service. And then I've worked at Patty Murphy's in Omaha, Nebraska, making ends meet, whether it was through college or through when I had an advertising agency job during the day in Chicago or, or in London too. So bartending has always been a part of my life. And from the space of a woman, I started as a waitress, you know, probably 14 or 15 and then I saw one that the bartenders were making a lot more money, but I saw them standing behind a podium. They were in control of the room and they had this, you know, protective fence around them that raised them up so that everybody would respect and listen to them. And then also kept people back, which was, you know, a different way from waitressing where everybody's just kind of grabbing onto your arm or wanting more for you, or you feel like you're not coming from a place of power. And that's, I started proving myself as a waitress, picking up bartending shifts and then became a bartender. And I absolutely felt that. And then I'm sure you've heard that a million times that bartender is like also being a therapist because I worked in lots of different places. I worked shifts where I worked day shifts on like Tuesdays. And some of the people who would come in on a Tuesday to have a drink and talk to a 19 year old about what was happening to them at work. That was a very different conversation than when I would work Friday nights and it was like a dollar shots and it was packed. Mm. <laughs> and then also being able to be calm in very stressful situations and to always remain in control. And it taught me to be a better writer, you know, thinking about my career as a copywriter and a creative director. I, when I hear a strategy, I could easily put myself in the head of that consumer and their voice and what motivates them and what they would want to hear. And I think that's all from my experience as a bartender. Back to the gin. Jan and Marsh return from Big Sur and the idea stays in the back of their minds. Then a visit to Napa sparks it all again. Obviously, we were drinking a lot of great wine, but restaurants and bars, we were asking for local spirits. And they didn't really have any. They were bringing out the usual suspects like Hendrix or Absolute Vodka, some big companies. And that started a conversation of this white space in the market. Like, why isn't there a distillery that is just inspired by California? We have we're such bountiful botanicals and fruits and vegetables, and we're known as like the garden basket of North America. Why isn't there something that's celebrating California, inspired by California, 
and made from, you know, California ingredients. And we wanted to start with gin because thinking back about that gray whale, it's really what told the story best of that journey. Gin is actually just flavored vodka. So when you hear that story, gin out of all the spirits is really the spirit that can tell a story of a terroir, of a place. And thinking about that migratory path down the Pacific coastline, that was really our first inspiration was we could gather and forage and work with local farmers and find ingredients that we could put into the gin that brought that taste experience to life. And also the experience of us being on that cliff edge um, in Big Sur to life as well. What was it like to have had this kind of conversation so you painted this picture of like you know you could only have this conversation on holiday you know on vacation and you're relaxed and I think a lot of us have done that where we've dreamt about the lives that we could have had or that we might have and the just you know the risks we're going to take but then getting back to real life and saying I'm going to no longer earn a salary so that I can take this enormous risk. What was that process like? Was it like, that's it, it's done one conversation, we know this is what we're going to do, we're going to chuck everything at it, or was there some doubt along the way? There was a lot of baby steps. We took some money out of the bank, a few thousand dollars, and I started deep diving, um, as I do with any project I'm working on for a brand, just data, 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 inspiration, just reading as much as I can about it. We jumped into our cars on the weekends and we went to talk to distilleries all up and down the West Coast and, you know, asked them their pain points, what they wish they would have known before they got into the, the business, asked them about how they raised the money, what mistakes that they made, whether it be distilling or, or marketing, and also what challenges they were facing right now, you know. Some of them were only three years in, some of them were 10 years in. And then also Marsh went over to the UK and studied distilling in the UK and gathered a lot of feedback. And we were able to make some early decisions, thankfully to the generosity of all of those entrepreneurs being open source with us and really showing us the books and showing us where they started and, and what they're struggling with now. And I think, you know, another question that we had was, when we look at our lives, staying on the path that we were on, you know, at the time I was an EVP, I was pretty high up the ladder, but looking back and thinking, well, what does that mean for our family? I, I could count out my next five to seven years and I, I know what that looked like. And I knew that that meant continuing to work a lot at long hours, continuing to travel, continuing to not be in control of my own destiny and having to, you know, work on some things I really wasn't excited about. And not having time to be around my daughters. And in the end, it came down to Marsh and I talking about now it's time for us to take another step, which was to sell our home. This was the point of no return. Jan and Marsh threw everything into making the concept work while still trying to balance the needs of their young family. It was about four months after that camping trip. And we thought... In order for us to go all in to really make this happen, we're going to have to take big sacrifice and a big step and leave fear behind us and jump in and sell our home and move our, our daughters to a smaller place and move into a rental. And, you know, we gave it two years. And, and when I thought about that, I thought, wow, it seems like a big risk. But sometimes you just have to think, you know, obviously, what's the worst that's going to happen? We take this risk, we sell our home, and then 
I continued to move up the corporate ladder and we buy another home in three or four years and save and start with a smaller home. And in the end, none of that matters. You know, our once kids are so resilient, they teach you so many lessons because mm-hmm. as soon as we told them that and we moved into our new space, they didn't care at all. Home is where we all are. And they didn't skip a beat. They were supportive and they were absolutely a part of this journey. But remember, this wasn't just about making a successful gin business. It was also about Jan and Marsh using their superpowers in a way that made their daughters proud and to give something back to the state that they loved. Before we even sold a bottle of gin, we made large $20,000 donation to Oceana so that they would understand our commitment to the brand, which was a big you know, chunk of our investment in selling the house. One of the reasons that we chose them is they're the largest organization that's committed to protecting our world's ocean. They have global impact. And then they also think about the world's waterways, lakes, rivers, how it's all connected in one ecosystem. You know, Marsh and I have a lot of contacts in the animal conservation world through his work at National Geographic and some documentaries that I worked on in producing. And when we talked to them, they had the utmost respect for for Oceana and the change they make. And what what really they do is policy change. So Mm -hmm. we work with other groups that organize people on the ground, ocean cleanups, and do a lot of events with them. But Oceana makes big worldwide global change in protecting the world's ocean and its animals. And when we came back to protecting gray whales, and and whales specifically, they were making the most impact. The need to sell their home and for Jen to still bring in a paycheck from Fox was also crucial at this early stage. Because what they learned from talking to other gin makers during their initial research was that the costs of even just initial distillery setup were insane. This, combined with a complex set of arcane U.S. laws on brewing spirits, meant that there were a whole lot of potential money pits that they would have to navigate. A lot of what we saw was distillers who had jumped in with infrastructure. Bare bones distillery would probably be 900000 but if you're going to want to build a space that has even a small tasting room... Um, in an area to expand, it's $2 million. And what we saw from those distillers is that they gave away so much of their equity raising that money that they were eight, 10 years into their process as a brand, actually having product out in the world. And they were working to pay off their investors and they were scraping by 10 years in. So we knew we didn't want to be in that position, that that wasn't going to put us in a position to win for wealth for our family or also to win for giving back to some sort of philanthropy. Um, and it certainly wasn't going to put us into the place where I was spending more time with my kids and less time, you know, 12, 14 hour days away from them. So because of that, that's really what made us jump in with our own funding from our home. You know, there's money everywhere if you have a good idea. The money that comes in needs to be strategic. But when you pull away and think, do we need that strategic help right now in the infancy of this company? And is it better to place a bet on ourselves? And really, we thought about future investors or future partners to show them how committed that we are to this idea is to throw ourselves all in. I'm I'm a creative director and a designer, and I start from visual places. So I remember my first month thinking about this idea. I have a very deep Pinterest board on exactly what the experience was going to be like when you came to the distillery. You know, it was going to be an incredible restaurant and a tasting room and cocktails, and it would overlook the ocean where you would see the gray whales pass. And we would have, you know, a conservation center 
It may be a place you could take some boats out to see the whales. And then, of course, you could take a, you know, a distillery experience and learn how to make the gin. And behind us would be our garden with fresh botanicals that we grow ourselves. So this was the vision. But Jan didn't fall into that trap. She and Marsh took a step back and came up with an innovative approach to conserve their capital and put it to better use early on. What's most important is getting the bottle and the product out to the world, making sure that we're really proud of, of that bottle and the liquid inside. And it's not about having a place for them to come. So how can we think about this differently? We went back to those conversations that we've had with other entrepreneurs and distillers. Some of them founders like us who were, were married couples and thought about the ones who mentioned that they were struggling or trying to still pay back some of the loans that, that they had to build the distillery. And we went and had discussions with those distillers and said, how about if we use your distillery when you're not? They brought the co-working model to the distillery space, doing for gin makers what WeWork did for the office. We don't need to build the infrastructure. And obviously they'll make a profit from us distilling with them. And that's a really safe place for us to start and to prove our concept. And that was an incredible move that was made. We found the right partners. Uh, we started distilling with them. I took a deep dive into the bottle design. We had no marketing budget, obviously, because it was just, you know, the money that we had in our own bank. So the only marketing we had was this. By this, she means the beautifully designed ocean blue bottles that gray whale gin comes in and which you can check out in the show notes after the episode is over this bottle had to tell the full story of the brands of the gray whales migratory path of our partnership with oceana and one percent for the planet because we didn't have any money for paid advertising which is funny because i'd spent my career working on you know brands with hundreds of millions of dollars of media budget and i was thinking big about what we we're going to be able to do someday and i just had to start with the basics of this being on shelf and someone pulling it off, just being compelled by the bottle. And then we wanted the liquid inside to be as good. I'd worked on product launches where the advertising was great. The communications were great. The bottle or the packaging was beautiful. And then the product didn't pay off. And then you can never get a consumer to come back and give you a second chance. So we became perfectionists about the liquid inside. We, it took us 152 recipes to come up with this, we were about six months later than we thought we would be in our, in our iteration and prototyping process. But we just kept coming back to Marsh and I in a room, does this tell the story of the gray whale and its migratory path? And can you taste and smell those California botanicals coming through? So uh, kombu was one of the last botanicals we added. And that was like in a really emotional week that we added that last botanical. I was working my day job still, and I had just gone from L.A. to New York and flew from New York up to the distillery up in Sonoma. Had a really stressful week, and Marsh had been there for a couple of days working on, on different batches and different recipes. And I walked into a room with, you know, 15 gin experts, and they were high-fiving me and hugging me and saying, we got it, we got it, this is it. It was about batch 132, and I felt elation and relief. I was exhausted, and they took me into a room to taste it. And in front of all of those experts, I just sobbed. <laughs> I just cried so hard. It was, you know, so much. We'd put so much on the line, and 
I was in a room of people, including my husband, who were so excited about the taste of this gin. And I didn't think it was right yet. It ha we hadn't nailed mm. it. So Marsh and I took a moment alone and we decided to wake up in the morning and taste it again in the morning. You know, he'd been distilling for days and days and tasting many batches. Mm. Uh, and, and he agreed. And it was that next day that we went and started gathering seaweed from the sea and sea kelp. We went back to the story of the brand, which is cool because it was really my branding background and my husband's culinary expertise that just thought we need, if we're making a gin to tell the story of the gray well, we need to get something from the ocean. So we went to the ocean and gathered botanicals, a whole bunch of different kelps and distilled them separately, put them in and really kombu is what took it over the finish line. And we're so proud of it. We designed this beautiful bottle that was waiting for a gin that, you know, a liquid inside that lived up to that story in that bottle. And we were so confident we were We couldn't wait to bottle. And I think we did only a week later and had it on shelves within a month, you know, getting everything bottled. And, you know, at first it was just Marsh and I, I was still at my day job. Marsh was head sales guy out on the street, knocking on doors, having conversations, walking into Vons, walking into bars and restaurants. One something that we heard from all the distillers when we gathered all of that feedback was, you know, because I come from advertising, I, I really like KPIs as well. Like what does success look like? I need to know what a win is in this industry that I know nothing about. And they all said, if you sell a thousand cases in a year, then you're a unicorn, then something's working and you'll continue to grow. And that's how all the great brands get started. Marsh and I didn't have a distributor. We didn't have any experience and we didn't have a distributor that would take us on. And we sold a thousand cases in the first three months in California. Wow. We just looked back like, this is happening. This is working. This, our whale is a unicorn. It's meaningful to people. It's compelling. They're coming back. And that was also the great feedback that we got from all of our retailers at bars and restaurants and um, liquor stores that people were coming back and asking for it again. And the, sometimes the shelves were empty. And that was something else that we had to deal with is we didn't have enough product. And when did you decide to leave your full-time job? We were continuing to hustle and break into as many accounts as we could and winning new grocery store chains and still just being really hungry, which we obviously we, we are still to this day. But we didn't have any access to any data about how well we were doing, other than all of the friends a year before who had sell, who said sell a thousand cases. And we were about a year in, and we started to get calls from the strategics, from spirit wine and spirits owners, some of the world's largest wine and spirits owners. They were a part of our conversation on the cliff edge in Big Sur. I really believe in manifesting and setting intentions, and that all came out of that conversation is wouldn't it be great if these two or three companies called on us one day to be our partners and we started to get calls from those strategics and we knew that there was something happening we knew that there was some sort of traction we got an invitation to meet one of those partners in new york and to come in to make a presentation i had been in you know many boardrooms making presentations on behalf of other brands so I thought I wasn't going to be nervous. <laughs> we walked into this room of one of those companies that we had mentioned in that sort of vision setting experience on that cliff edge. 
And there were 30 people in the room and stakes had never been higher than any meeting I'd ever been in because this was my brand and my family's future. And this legacy that we were trying to build of our family with ocean, ocean conservation was on the line. We stood up in front of the room and made our presentation. And then it was time for that partner to make their presentation back to us. And their presentation started with, how did you capture three and a half percent of the craft gin market in California in 12 months? It was such an incredible moment. It's still <laughs> one of Marsh and I's highs is we're under the table like kicking each other and be like, oh my gosh, this is what? <laughs> you know, when you consider that um, Hendrix has 50% of the craft gin market and all the other competitors, the ones that anybody has heard of, like the botanist or aviation or no lets, they only have about 8%. Everything else is split up kind of equally between 8%. So for us to gather, you know, three and a half percent of that share was incredible considering we had no, you know, paid marketing behind it. And then their presentation ended with a question for us is, is there enough kombu in the world to sustainably harvest it for 1 million cases a year? And that was another like, what? What? You know, at the time <laughs> we were only at 20,000. So for yeah. someone to be talking to us about a million cases and we walked away from that moment, took a picture outside underneath the sign, like, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and had some awesome, incredible discussions with them about what that partnership would look like. And in the end, we walked away from those partnerships because, you know, they weren't right for our family at the time. They didn't see the value maybe of marginalized superpowers of keeping us involved. We were becoming a part of the machine where they acquire brands and the founders just continue to be the face of the brand, but not really involved. And that really didn't come from an ego place. We just knew that the success we had had so far was because the decisions that Marsh and I were making for marketing or storytelling or events that we were having or the distillation of the gin. And we knew for the brand to continue to be successful that we really should be involved. We can't wait to have a larger team, but, but we should be involved. So about three or four months later, we met with a new partner, Deutsch Family Wine and Spirits, and they're the fifth largest owner of wine and spirits in the world. They're a family-owned company, and we met with the president and founder. And one of the first things that they started to talk about before they talked about anything with the brand or name any numbers was that's what's important to them is the people and the founders that they get involved with. And they see what Marsh and I have been able to do with this small brand on our own. And that's what they would be investing in is us. And they want us to, you know, to be involved as heavily as we want, want to be involved. Um, and so we went or entered into a joint partnership. That's when I felt confident enough to leave my job at Fox. You mentioned, which I loved that, you know, what, what you like to know the KPIs, what does good look like here? And ocean conservation and sustainability is, I know, very important to you personally and also important to the brand. So what does good look like for gray whale gin when it comes to the impact you're having on ocean conservation and sustainability? It's getting monetary funds, obviously, to Oceana to make that impact, to change the way that governments all over the world are, are treating our oceans and policies that they're creating to protect the animals in the water. But also it's how can Marsh and I be involved specifically with our superpowers? So from the beginning, we always wanted to jump in with Oceana. 
beyond just making a monetary donation. And I had come from a whole background of big brands who make donations to philanthropies, but then their brand doesn't behave in that way. They'll throw the money around and they'll do a whole campaign about it, but their brand isn't really living and behaving that way. So when we made that commitment to Oceana, we said that Braywell Gin wants to be a part of your growth as well. So we've jumped in and helped them with creating films. Marsha's hosted a couple of different things. I've produced and written films to help them raise more money for policy change, including a new law that really affected the waters off of California to end drift gill net fishing in California. We were one of the only states that still had it. It was the biggest threat to whales beyond being hit by boats or, or barges. And drift gill net fishing is used to catch swordfish, but for every one swordfish they catch, it kills another animal. It's these tiny little nets that run three miles long, and it kills things like whales, sharks, turtles, dolphins. And it's really this archaic way of fishing. So Oceana developed a new sustainable way of fishing that fishes at night and uses just hooks at the bottom. It actually catches more swordfish than fishermen had ever caught before. So we enacted a bill to end with Oceana and helping them tell that story to end drift gillnet fishing. And then also to provide the fishermen with um, all of their new training and all of the new tools that they would need to, to start fishing that way. So that's what real change means to us is not being able to just throw some money their way and watch what they be, but also jump in as a brand and make a meaningful impact. You caught my attention earlier when you said your distributor was Deutsch Family Wine and Spirits. They also represent Yellowtail Wines and I'm going back years now, but when I was in business school, there were case studies written about Yellowtail, I remember, in a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. And if I can, I mean, I'm probably bastardizing it, but basically the concept is don't sell your product in a red ocean where people are already buying that thing. Think about the people who are not buying it and why they're not buying it and then create something for them. So this was written a while back, but one of the examples was Yellowtail. And as a wine for people who didn't drink wine, and it was just a lot more mm. approachable, and they might think that they're going to have a beer, but why not have a glass of wine? It's not intimidating. It's, it wasn't going to be a sommelier telling you about all the different things, flavors that you should taste. It was just really good wine in a bottle that you could drink uh, you know, on a Tuesday night. That got me thinking, do you hope that people drink gray whale who wouldn't normally think of drinking gin who for whom they might drink wine or drink you know a different different kind of spirit absolutely and that was the white space that we saw in the market because obviously like creating a gin isn't solving some big business problem or something we all wake up saying i wish i could have had this small invention to solve a problem today there was there were lots of gins out there when you think about some of the world's best-selling gins and even some of the, the new ones that are being created, it's a lot of stories of old Englishmen or Scottishmen or Irishmen and an old recipe that's been passed down thousands of years ago. They all kind of have the same story. And then when you look at that, that's it, you know, and, and there weren't philanthropies connected to them. And it wasn't really connecting to modern life and the ingredients inside weren't connecting to modern life. And we had a lot of friends who would say before we even made the gin, I don't like gin. So that was already a part of, you know, our party throwing at home would, would oh, you, you just haven't had good gin before. 
So when we thought about everything with the brand, thinking about what was important to modern life and to modern consumers, which is doing good in the world, you know, having your choice as a consumer, have something beyond just bringing something home and consuming something to make a positive impact somewhere, either socially or environmentally. And then we thought about fresh ingredients from places that you know where they're from. That's really important to us. And then thinking about even the look of the bottle, which gin especially and whiskey stay in this very dark world. And you almost feel like you have to be in a dark place, maybe emotionally <laughs> and then actually, you know, in a dark room when you're drinking them. And we wanted to come from, which is a very California place, but this like optimistic color of sitting next to the water and bringing back those kinds of memories. There's, you know, when you're around a body of water, you just feel like this huge sense of possibilities and the day is going to be long and filled with good times. So we believed that there was an opportunity there for people who had been vodka drinkers to think about gin in a different way. And it's turned out to be, to be true, especially with a younger audience and especially with women. You know, our, our audience is 50-50, the people who are, are, are buying the gin, but more women are buying our gin than, than other brands. And I think that comes through with this sort of optimism and story from the bottle. So what is your vision for Golden State Distilleries? If you can, you know, fast forward me now, 5, 10, 15 years. Well, we'll have that outdoor distillery for Greywell Gin that I talked about. <laughs> <laughs> can you invite me? Can I come? Yes, I want of the view. course. I want the view and the gin. There's going to be artists in residence cabins. So you can have one of the artists in residence cabins. You'll be next to a painter and a DJ and a marine biologist. We'll just bring groups of people like that together and do incredible things. We took a trip down to San Ignacio where the gray whales have their babies. Marsh and I took it first five years ago, just on our own to go see it. Um, definitely put it on your list. It is an incredible experience. It's the only place in the world that gray whales seek out human contact. And it's this tiny little bay that they've been coming to for thousands of years. And they just know that they're safe there. One, they're safe from predators like sharks. It's too warm and it's too shallow. But also there's been three, it's a UNESCO protected area. And there's only three families who are allowed to bring boats into the water, their businesses. And they're tiny little boats, 10 feet long. And so they know that they can have a kind loving relationship with the humans there. And I'm sure you've been on whale sighting trips before where maybe they take you out into the ocean and then there's like a radar, you know, and they're like, oh, one's coming up on the left-hand side. And they're in this big, huge boat with 50 people. Um, and they're always like hundreds of yards away. Well, in San Ignacio, they take you out on tiny little boat and they go out to the middle of the bay and they turn off the engine and you sit there and you're thinking, oh, something's wrong or we need to go drive to go find them and then we'll chase the whales. And you just sit in this boat and within 10 minutes, a gray whale and her calf come right up to the edge of the boat and they want you to rub them and touch them and put your hands inside their baleen. And the babies aren't strong enough to swim on their own the whole way. So their mom gets under the baby and lifts their head up and you're just eye to eye with a whale. And the whale is three times the size of this boat. If you look at any of our brand videos um, on our website, you'll see we have like a drone shot of us in this boat. But it's this incredibly 
moving experience. And Marsh and I just cried and cried. And we wanted to bring people who had supported the brand back to that. And this was only, we were around for about a year. We were going down there with some um, Oceana marine biologists. And it started very organically where our friend, who's a professional skateboarder, said he wanted to come with his wife and kids. And we're like, yeah, you should come. And we stay in this place with yurts and Marsh makes the dinner at night and, and some cocktails. And, and we'll have great experiences with the whales during the day. And then our friend who's a chef came and basically what we said to all those friends was, if you're coming on the trip, you, all you have to do is bring your superpower. So we said, okay, if you're coming, then you're in charge of dinners. You know, we'll help you get all of the ingredients, but you guys just kill it with dinners. And, you know, another friend is a photographer. So he said, I'm going to shoot the whole thing and, and document the experience. And then another one of our friends is an incredible musician. We said, we'd love to have you come, but you're going to play music every night. So we had about 28 people that came down with us last time. And it was really like a creative salon over the course of three days, just of bringing all these people together who didn't know each other, but had shared values, you know, at the time centered around Grey Whale and Oceana and the brand. And what has come of that weekend is people have started businesses together for that weekend, have done collaborations together, all focused around the environment and some sort of philanthropy in some way. And of course, we've all come together to enjoy great meals and gin together. And that is really so much of the vision of Golden State Distillery and what Marsh and I love is thinking about building a place that brings people together to enjoy great food and wine and experience being outside and close to the ocean and what that and how open that makes you feel, but also to bring people together to create and, and innovate as well. So that's when I joke about there's going to be artists and residents cottages that you can stay in pretty serious. Like that's the vision we're trying to manifest. But in the future, Golden State Distillery will make more spirits that are inspired by California and celebrate and give back to the environment and um, animal conservation in some way. And also Marsh and I are consulting and supporting other purpose-driven entrepreneurs and helping them grow and build and win um, in their industries. And that has been incredibly gratifying too. Are your girls so proud? They are. And that's going to make me cry. They are so proud. And they have learned through us, just through osmosis of being with us on all those weekend trips and listening to Marsh and I put together presentations and decks and having conversations on financials and brand story and marketing positioning. You know, we didn't even realize how much that they were learning and absorbing from that. One of their favorite shows is Shark Tank. And when Lila was 10 years old, we were watching an episode. And as soon as the entrepreneur finished their presentation, she said, that valuation is way off and got really upset and angry about it. <laughs> and Marge and I looked at each other like, what? How does she even know what that means? But she had really been absorbing all of this. And the other really cool thing is they come to us with business ideas. They work on them. They have little decks and presentations and logos drawn. And the most important part of those business ideas and presentations is that every single one of them is purpose-driven. It's all purpose plus profit. Every single one of them has a philanthropic charge that's attached to that brand. 
and they've been programmed now. They, there's no other way to think that, you know, doing good is good business. And that's what we believe. And, and now that's how our girls think about the world too, is how are they going to take their superpowers and create something that creates more positive change in the world? It's, it's been the best part of this journey. Yeah, that's like, I'm sitting here taking notes. My, my son's only um, three, but like, <laughs> I need to instill this stuff in him really early on. Okay, so I'd like to switch gears a little bit and end on our quick fire-ish Tilly round. What's one lesson you've learned the hard way? One lesson I've learned the hard way is to make decisions without fear being involved. So that lesson was learned in my 20s many times. Wealth is freedom to make decisions without fear. And I think I made a lot of decisions based on, do I have enough money to pay rent? Will I be able to you know, eat this week? I stayed in toxic work environments because of that. And, and I think that if I you know, could change that now, that I would just let go of all of that fear, knowing what I know now, that everything is going to be okay. All of those things happen for a reason. And I should have left some of those environments earlier and to not lead with fear. What don't women talk enough about? Our success. You know, it's part of our feminine energy to be humble. And that took me a long time to learn that when I share my success, and celebrate my success with other women that actually inspires them. That doesn't put them, you know, in a place of feeling like they're less than or they can't do it. it. It inspires them. So I've gotten a lot better about talking about that with all of my groups of whether it's friends who are my mom friends or whether it's former coworkers. I'm all ready to celebrate their success and to share mine with them too. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you since changed your mind about? Being perfect will lead to perfect. Yeah. It's been so much of my young years and in, in my early 20s too in college, just striving so hard and working so hard, whether it was academically or through my first jobs to win every award and to make everyone happy and please everyone and, and do something in my mind that I thought was perfect, but that certainly wasn't making me happy. So when I walked away from this feeling of that there was a moment when things would be perfect, it's really embracing, a, I like to call it living in beta. And when you think about a beta project, it's never done. It's never perfect. It's always growing and changing and evolving and iterated. So when I walked away from that there was going to be some perfect finished product that was myself, everything changed. I was open more to failures. I was open to other people's opinions. I was open to staying home and taking a day off because there was a reason that that was happening. What unearned privilege or unfair advantage has been most instrumental to your success so far? Being from Nebraska. When people come to visit, you know, especially my British husband, when he came to Nebraska, the thing that he left with was the people. Everyone is so friendly and just puts themselves out there and they seem to have no airs about them. And I think that that has been my power. You know, I left Nebraska when I was 18 and went to school and my first job in the advertising world was in London. And I, since then, I've lived in, you know, many cities, but Whatever room that I'm in, people hear the Nebraska come through in my energy, in the way that I approach people. I'm really not intimidated by anyone, whatever title they hold or, you know, in my job in the studio world, I worked with a lot of celebrities and being from Nebraska and being very centered it's let me have that kind of confidence in those rooms. And I've actually been in rooms with presidents of studios and they've stopped me and said, 
where are you from? And I've said, I, I'm from Nebraska. I'm from the Midwest. And they would say, I can tell. And they meant that in a total complimentary way. I know it might not have sounded that way, but they did because I'm a bridge builder. I was able to take people from different departments or, or different groups or lay down egos and get people to work together because people from Nebraska are really good at making everyone feel comfortable. Who's your biggest champion? My husband. Yeah, my husband and co-founder and I'm his and I'm just so giddy and grateful that I, that I met him in a bar, by the way. Please tell me you were drinking gin. <laughs> I was drinking gin in a bar that I bartended at in Chicago. And I was off work that night. Bordeaux in Chicago on Lincoln Avenue. And he was visiting from London on a vacation and had like a 48-hour date. One of those things. But yeah, he's my biggest cheerleader for sure. When do you feel you're most powerful? When I'm inspiring my girls, any of those moments where they witness me in a meeting or on a panel or coming off of an interview or coming out of a meeting and telling them about big win we had with Oceana, when I see the looks on their faces, that's what powers me to keep going. Yeah, they're inspired mm -hmm. feeling inside. And the confidence that they're just getting from that, that they're feeling like they can do anything. Last question. What are you really fucking good at? I'm really good at distilling stories. I'm really good at hearing a person's story or, or brand story and distilling it down to, you know, a really simple message that compels people. And that helps whether it's in a commercial or creating a brand or bringing people together in a room. I'm good at that. If people want to know more about Golden State Distilleries or just follow you and your story, where should they go? Um, you can follow us at Gen. it's G-R-A-Y, Gin on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and me, it's at Jan Livingston, my maiden name, at Jan Livingston on Instagram. Thanks to everyone for listening. If meeting these women is valuable to you, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help us reach more incredible women to introduce you to. My hope is to elevate you and a lot of women just like you into power and to help us use that power to elevate others. Until next time, stay curious, stay brave, and keep making good trouble. Like